Welcome to the Sci-Fi Guest Show, I'm your host Jack, and in this podcast I'll be talking to different scientists about their research and the topics they know best. In this episode I'm talking to Andrew Young about his work in the field of particle physics at the University of Edinburgh where he's studying for his PhD. So welcome to the show, and to start off with, I'd like to ask what particle physics actually is, and what was it that made you want to study this? Yeah, sure. So the particle word uh, just refers to particle physics. Uh, so this is, um, if, I, if I try to put it in like a one-liner, is the study of the very small and sometimes very fast. But the, the theory part of it just associates with people who try to come up with a framework to describe uh, the world at the really, really, really small scales. When you mush these two words together, uh, these are the people who study particle physics and try to come up with some model uh, that describes uh, the world, building on you know like previous works, uh, previous foundations. Why? As to why uh, I wanted to become a particle physicist, <laughs> I, I don't think there's any profound answer to this. I just thought it was really cool. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, more like in hindsight, uh, it's quite incredible that uh, we have any chance at all to study things that are beyond our immediate senses. Like, uh, so where we're looking at, well, looking uh, in inverted commas, and we're looking at things that are really small, you know, like things we, we can never uh, actually see and in environments that are so extreme that uh, it's not, not hospitable for us. So it's quite incredible that uh, we still get this opportunity to study and to try and understand, in some sense, a, a completely different world. The sort of working analogy that I have with people is during the not-so-serious hours of particle physics, almost like playing with Lego. And there are a lot of different kind of components, like you have the different length of bricks, you know, you have the flatter kind of pieces. So in some sense, you can build this physical world, or at least the ethos is that we can build this physical world with these, uh, we call them fundamental building blocks of nature. Particle physics yeah, concerns itself uh, with things at the scale of, you know, the atom to and smaller. Uh, and in my particular group, we, we focus on the subatomic scales. What is the subatomic that's interesting for you to study? And is this quite a new field or is this something that's been going on for a long time? Yeah, so uh, actually we, we can dial back to like uh, the earlier, the early 20th century, where we have Rutherford discovering the constituents of uh, the atom. So, for example, well, the, the simplest one is something like hydrogen, which is just made of uh, a proton. Uh, but of course, when you get to more and more complicated atoms, a carbon atom, you have multiples of these protons. Uh, and when they looked at the sort of like electric charge, they realized that there must be something else in the atoms. So we found that by, by the early 20th century, that the atoms are made of these smaller parts, if you will, uh, called the protons and the neutrons. Now, it, it sounds great because all life as we knew it at that time in the 20th century uh, are made of these, these atoms, right? things from the periodic table. Uh, so the atom consists of these electrons uh, and they, they surround this center that uh, consists of protons and neutrons. When we move forward to the mid you know, 20th century, uh, post Second World War, there is this phenomenon that is happening. They, they call it a particle zoo because um, people were discovering more and more of these sort of like they're discovering more and more cousins of you know, the protons and the neutrons. 
uh, and they, they couldn't find a way to you know, neatly classify it. It's become a bit of a goal now, this, this habit that has uh, formed into this goal in particle physics where we try to classify things uh, using a very small set of rules. Uh, it took very brilliant people, some of them like Murray Gell-Mann uh, and many others, theorists in this case, they came up with a theory that perhaps we actually have an even smaller constitu constituents. So smaller pieces that make up the protons, the neutrons, and their cousins. You know, they just gave it a, a, an amusing name. They called them quarks. Is there any reason why, why they were called quarks? Yeah, so it, it came from uh, one of the James Joyce's books uh, that Gelman was reading at that time. And there was this, there's this term called the free muster quark within the book. And I think Gelman read, uh, was reading through this when he came up with the idea. I mean, at this point, these things are so abstract. It's not necessary to try and name them as something relatable, you know, in our every, everyday life. Yeah, so these, uh, the idea of these quarks at that time is, is a pretty abstract and mathematical concept. Physics has aims to describe the physical world. So we have to find a way to prove the existence of uh, these quarks. There, therein uh, begins this whole set of uh, experiments. We can talk about that later if you want, but it turns out that there are a multitude of these quarks. Each different one of them, we, we call them flavors. So there are six flavors of quarks. Again, this flavor has nothing to do with um, the taste. So today, we have confirmed uh, six different flavors of quarks, and they can be grouped into three pairs, uh, if you think of uh, the way the name works. Um, so there are the up and down quarks, and they are known as the first generation. There are the charm and strange quarks, so they're just this, the second set. Uh, and then there's the top and bottom quarks, so they form the third set. Uh, now, when we dial back to the 20th century picture uh, about the center of the atom, so you have these protons and these neutrons. The protons uh, have two of these up quarks and one down quark, whereas the neutron has one up quark and two down quarks. So what's the difference between the up and down and different types of quarks? Yeah, very good question. Yeah, so how, how do you distinguish them, right? Like, so so they, are, they form these two pairs. Sorry, they form these three pairs. Uh, and within the pair, they almost have um, these opposite behaviors. The ones that are called up, charm, and top, uh, they actually have a positive charge, positive electric charge. You see that when we combine them together, uh, they must have the same charge as the protons or the neutrons. So these three that I mentioned just now, the up, the charm, and the top, they have uh, a charge of plus two thirds. Uh, it's a bit weird, right, to have a fractional electric charge. Normally, uh, you know, if we think back to, to high school, uh, the proton has like, you know, a charge plus one, and the electron has charge minus one, so that they cancel out nicely, right? But these quarks have uh, these very strange fractional charges. The remaining three, you know, we have the down quark, the strange quark, and the bottom quark. So these have negative minus one third charge. So once again, that, that, seems, a bit, uh, that seems a bit odd. But uh, when we think about the protons, so the proton has a positive charge, right? We have a charge of plus one. And then, as I said earlier, it's made of these two up quarks and one down quark. So you can do this, uh, <laughs> this mental math across uh, the radio with me. You know, you have two up quarks, so that's four thirds. 
and then you have one down quark that's minus one third. So you add them up together and they give you a plus one. Oh, so the fractions are kind of relative to the charge of the thing they make. Yes. So in some sense, um, it's this categorization that physicists were doing through um, the, the 50s until the early 90s, where they have to, they know that these quarks, if they form the constituents of um, the larger protons and neutrons, they must in total add up to the same kind of properties that the protons and neutrons have, for example. So in that sense, the charge has to balance out like that. Other, there, there are also other properties uh, that separate um, these six different flavors. Uh, mainly that's their mass. So before, before I go on to list them out, we have to remember that these quarks, right, they are like, they're the most basic Lego blocks. Do you think in the future there would be a smaller level again that made up those? With questions like that, I guess the experimentalists and the theorists um, will, will have uh, different takes on that. So, of course, from the theoretical point of view, you know, you've heard of these uh, popular science claims as well. There are a lot of ideas out there that are waiting to be explored, waiting to be experimentally explored. So you hear of these things called strings, you know, that come from string theory. In string theory, that's proposed to be the smallest constituents that would eventually make up the quarks and so forth. There are lots of these uh, very you know, wonderful and uh, sophisticated theories out there, but at the moment, the experiments don't have the technology to probe it. Uh, and, it's, and it's not clear on a case-by-case -case basis whether, you know, whether we can achieve the technology to actually uh, probe them. So as far as we know, in 2020, uh, the experiments give a very strong suggestion uh, in fact, it's, it's been confirmed experimentally, these quarks, these six flavors uh, do exist. So how do you experiment with things that are so tiny in order to actually find out anything about them? In today's sort of uh, experiments, it, it's become highly sophisticated. But we can start from something simpler. Uh, we can think back of uh, the experiment that uh, made Rutherford conclude that the atom is made of this positive uh, center. So remember, you know, transitioning from the 19th century to the 20th century, there are competing models on what uh, the smallest indivisible, you know, quantity uh, of matter is. In the early 20th century, an idea of this, this periodic table, these tell you how each atom, uh, you know, quote unquote, looks like. So Rutherford set out uh, to do this experiment where he fired, you know, what, what we call in physics, um, alpha particles. He fired these things called um, alpha particles. So this is uh, one of the types of uh, radiation uh, that, that we experience. So the alpha particles are basically this, this really heavy particle emitted out of a, a radioactive material. And he fired it at a sheet of gold. And most of the time, the, these alpha particles, uh, they, will, they will go right through the gold sheet, right? So this is like a gold foil, like just like a... So the particle can just pass straight through then? Yeah, they can travel straight through. That is actually the, the, not, not the surprising bit. You know, this gold sheet is, is made of um, these atoms, uh, and they're probably arranged in a way where there's gaps for you, uh, for the particles to, to cut right through. Now, what's uh, really surprising with this experiment is that occasionally, when they fire these particles at the gold sheet, the the particle, the alpha particle that they fired, actually did 
sometimes 180 degree deflection, right? So these particles get deflected off the go sheet and sometimes almost back to back. At that time, did they not think the atom was made of anything then? Indeed. In fact, at that, at that time, the model of the small world, you know, the atomic model, is that you have just these electrons dotted through this sort of membrane. Like, uh, I believe it's called like the plum pudding model. Uh, so there, at, at that time, there was no evidence of something like a proton uh, or even a center. When they detected some occasional times where the alpha particles get deflected, they, they drew up two conclusions. One, that the atoms are mostly empty space, right? Because uh, these alpha particles just pass through them. But two, whilst it's mostly empty space, there, there are these centers in, in the atoms where it's positively charged. So uh, what lesson we can draw from this experiment is that when you fire something very fast at your target, when you, when you talk about small scales, this is a means to what we call probe the target or to study the target. Because the real sort of gold nugget of discovery from this experiment is that um, there was this deflection, right? So when the alpha particle comes into the gold foil, uh, it, it bounces away. And this bouncing gave us a clue of what the inside of the atom is. If we take this, uh, if we take this lesson, and then you know, pump up the, the, the energy scale. So if we make our source faster, so if we choose something like the alpha particle, but for it to move faster, we can probe a deeper structure. So at the level of uh, Rutherford, he managed to probe the atomic structure. So he managed to discover something about the uh, center of uh, these atoms. So that's called a nucleus. Did they have any understanding of what a nucleus might be made of? No, no. Uh, at that time, there, there, yeah, there was no, there was no real evidence of what the atomic structure should look like. And so he set up this experiment to to find out. And so now, if we want to talk about quarks, which are on a uh, even smaller scale, they're buried deep uh, inside this proton, uh, and we can actually uh, discuss that a bit more afterwards. But the idea is, if you want to study them, you have to fire something and collide with these protons uh, at such a violent process where it can actually start interacting. If you think, you know, as an analogy of the, the alpha particle and the, the gold nucleus, you want to fire something to actually bounce off. A bit like a bat with sonar. Yeah, we want to send some kind of signal or, you know, a particle towards uh, the proton. And if the signal is strong enough, i.e. if the particle uh, is uh, is energetic enough, it will probe uh, the, the structure of the protons. So we've been using this very simple idea uh, since the early 20th century, but you know, the means to do it has uh, you know, become more and more sophisticated uh, over the decades. And today, of course, we have these experiments uh, actually constitute the largest man-made machine in the world. The current largest uh, experiment is done in Geneva at CERN. Is CERN the same thing as the Hadron Collider? That's right. So this is uh, the, the machine is called the Large Hadron Collider. So instead of using alpha particles to bump them into the gold atom, we now use two beams, you know, two collections of protons, and we spin them around the rings. 
and then and collect them together so that we can study the internal structure of uh, the protons. Is it just a massive version of the bouncing particles off the sheet of gold experiment? Yeah, uh, well, you, you know, like uh, if, if we have, uh, you know, like five hours or something, we, you know, we can really try to do it justice. Uh, of course, today in 2020, we're not just smashing protons together to know what's inside the protons. The alpha particles from the 20th century today are the protons, but they themselves are also the target. By, by smashing these protons together at very high energy, uh, we can think back uh, on this very famous short equation that Albert Einstein uh, came up with, uh, E equals mc squared. Uh, all these energy can be converted into mass uh, and it can help us to discover new particles. Uh, and that certainly made sensational news in 2012 when these, same, these protons that crashed into each other at really high energy produced something uh, that theorists have suspected. And they called the Higgs boson uh, back in 2012. Um, but that may be uh, a story for another podcast, I think. <laughs> Do you know if the Higgs boson is another type of quark or is it something completely different? Yeah, so, so it's more of the latter. So it's unlike uh, the quark uh, in the sense it's not part of the same family, if you will. They, they belong to a different, if you will, species of particles uh, that we call gauge bosons. Sorry to ask another question that might not be in your field, but was there any truth to the idea that the experiments in the Large Hadron Collider could cause black holes to form? Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm sure I'm sure everyone uh, is thinking about it when 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 they hear that the podcast is transitioning to the LHC. So at first I thought it was bogus before I got to the university, uh, and then in my third year, so I took a particle physics course. And the people who lecture, more often than not, are some, somewhat associated with you know, the Large Hadron Collider. And so it turns out that this concern was, uh, in some sense, it was real. You know, in, in any big project, one has to assess all the possible risks. Uh, and there, there, there were concerns, and that's all they were. There, there were just these concerns that when we produce uh, so much energy uh, in this small amount of space, when these uh, protons come and collide together at such a high energy, they were wondering whether we might uh, produce a, a small, a really mean black hole. And the follow-up question is, if we do produce it, does it become stable? Uh, it's okay if you produce it and it evaporates away and if it disappears. But if it becomes stable, it's going to start eating its surrounding, right? I, and I guess that's the sensational concept that we all have when we think about uh, black holes at, at CERN. I'm telling this story because uh, there's a very good lesson of ingenuity that comes with it. It's a valid question. Uh, while I, I believe most people thought uh, it's, you know, it's really unlikely that's going to happen, but they wanted to set out to prove it. Uh, and they actually did something I find really ingenious. They just looked to the skies. So every moment right now, we, you and I, Jack, uh, we are being bombarded um, by what we call cosmic rays. So they are just particles uh, that's, that's been streaming through space and when they pass through our atmosphere you know they interact with the ozone or something uh, and some of them will continue to stream right through them and then through us as well so some of these uh, physicists they they could measure the amount of energy that these cosmic rays uh, interact with the ozone and they find that it's actually much higher than the energy that's being produced in 
in a Large Hadron Collider. So what this means is that the collision course between you know, these cosmic ray particles and our ozone uh, particles is such an energy level that is much higher than that in the Large Hadron Collider. And if we're not observing <laughs> you know, mini black holes being produced in the sky, we shouldn't be worried about uh, it being produced in our uh, experiments. So, you know, in, in that sense, that's, that's a very resourceful, you know, very out-of-the-box way of thinking about this problem. Like, they, they look elsewhere for, for the answer. I should re, re, reinstate that uh, whilst, we, whilst I called it a concern, it wasn't as though, oh, we have to halt this project because, you know, this could be a global catastrophe. It was never, too, it was never elevated to that state, I believe. Yeah. So we went off on a bit of a tangent there, but returning back to your own work, um, you were going to explain a bit about what the different groups of quarks did. So these quarks, uh, as I said earlier, the protons are made of uh, two of these up quarks and one of these down quarks. And the neutron is made of two down quarks and one up quark. At the very beginning of this podcast, we mentioned this uh, particle zoo. The protons and neutrons have uh, a multitude of cousins. You know, the up, the up and the down, but also uh, a variety of other these flavors as well. The strange, the charm, the top and the bottom. So in the experiments, we only actually see the, the protons and the neutrons. You know, I'm using the word see in a very loose sense. So we, we see the protons, neutrons and their cousins. What we don't actually see are the quarks themselves. So it's not as if, uh, you know, if I crash these two protons together at very high speeds, you know, one single up quark is going to spit out and then we're, we're going to observe it in our detector. This actually never happens. That's one of the peculiar things uh, about quarks. You know, the, the sort of one-liner that we can unpack is that quarks are never observed on their own in, in the world we, we live in. So they're really solidly stuck together then? Yeah, so, so they, are always, they always come in either pairs or triplets, you know, like th three, three of these quarks, as I said earlier, make the protons uh, and the neutrons. Two of them can also make some, some other particles as well, but they never appear as one, one up quark whizzing about in the air. This was something that, uh, well, there was no reason to suspect that this, this should happen. So we, we think of um, quarks uh, today as the most fundamental as one of the most fundamental uh, building blocks of the universe, alongside with uh, the very familiar uh, electron. Now, we can see the electron uh, as in it exists on its own. It doesn't need to sit together in pairs. It doesn't need to travel in pairs. Uh, so the electron is, a, is one of the building blocks of the natural world, and so is the quark. And yet the quarks, they, they don't exist on their own. They always exist in, in pairs and triplets. So that, that uh, is, is something that I find very interesting. It also creates a massive headache <laughs> in you know, research in fundamental physics. Uh, you know, these, these headaches spawn jobs, right? They, they spawn research topics. They allow people like me to, to do research. So maybe I'll unpack that a little bit. Because you can't, you can't study the quarks on themselves, you always end up studying the protons or the neutrons or, or their cousins. Because we only ever see in the experiments uh, that the protons uh, and the neutrons and not the quarks themselves, we need to find another way to study the quarks, if you, if you will, like individually. For example, if, if I wanted to ask the question, 
how does the uh, behavior of the quarks influence the behavior of the protons? So how does the smaller uh, constituents, how is it that when we change the smaller constituents, will we change um, the, the thing that they, they make up? How would you experimentally figure out what one change to one quark would do to the others then? Well, that, that, that would be a, an interesting question to ask about regarding these quarks. And so to do that, we have to actually run simulations. So we, if we simulate quarks with um, slightly different properties, we can produce uh, a particle, let's say the proton, with a slightly different property. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah, so you really have to rely on computer modeling over... That's right, because quarks cannot be seen in nature, in the real world. Uh, we have to simulate them on really massive computers uh, to try and reproduce uh, the, the results that we see in nature. So things like the protons and the properties of the proton. It's, it's not that the Large Hadron Collider uh, is not powerful enough to, to probe the quarks on their own, to study the quarks on their own. But it's uh, a matter of uh, just the way nature is today, in, in 2020, that we have to simulate them. I, I guess I want to drive this, this point home. Uh, it's, it's not that we don't have a powerful enough uh, microscope to, to stare at them. You know? <laughs> like, uh, they are completely censored from the rest of the world. So they, they exist, if you will, behind the shell of the proton. Uh, although, you know, we, we should take that statement with a, with a grain of salt in the sense that what we ever, what we only observe in experiments are, are the protons and the neutrons and such. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible to dig that far down into an atom. So now that you've given quite a, an extensive background to your field, what is the aim of the research that you're doing or is going on in your group at the moment? Well, we'll go from the big picture downwards. The, the way that fundamental physics works today is that we built on the foundations of uh, you know, the, the previous discoveries and the previous works. And we have this thing called standard model of particle physics. So it's, if you will, it's like a family picture, all uh, the different building blocks that make up uh, the physical universe. We know that it's, it describes the universe uh, very accurately. All these tests that we've been doing from the 50s all, all the way to 2020 have shown that this family picture is very accurate. But it's also incomplete because, uh, you know, we, we give it such a, you know, such a noble name, the standard model of, of particle physics, right? It's almost suggesting it should be able to account for all physical phenomena. Uh, and for the ones it does account for, it does so amazingly, like precisely. It really precisely describes uh, the world that we see around us. But there are, there are a lot of things that the standard model, as we know today, that does not describe, or rather it, it has nothing to say about certain, area, certain phenomena that we see in the world today. If, if this is supposed to be some kind of like a master theory that can describe the world from the bottom up, it's clearly not complete yet um, because there are a lot of other phenomena that uh, it can't describe. So honing in uh, a little bit more, the standard procedure uh, in research is to look at what the experiments measure because that's the real world. The, the experiments give you a number and then you try to get a prediction from the model so that's the one that the, the theorists uh, come up with. They try and get a prediction for the model, and then they compare the prediction to the experiment. 
if the experiment number is different from the model, it means that the model is uh, incomplete, right? Uh, and maybe it, it can suggest ways in which the model can improve itself. So this is how we sort of make progress in, in particle physics. This sort of like joint work between experiments and, and theory. So there are certain things that the model cannot predict. One of the reasons being, uh, you know, we can't, we can't see the, the quarks on themselves. So we need to get numbers from simulations as well. So in this, uh, in this big push to uh, find out the limits of the standard model, as in where does it stop short, we try to provide uh, these simulated results that we can also compare with the experimental results. So in this sense, that's where these kind of uh, PhDs uh, are heading to. Uh, you try to develop the computational tools, the sort of conceptual understanding, you know, of what you want to compare in terms of the, or what quantities you want to compare with the experiments, uh, and then you work hard <laughs> to, to get this uh, simulated quantity. Yeah, I think often people think the goal is to replace old theories instead of update them and change them and make them more accurate. That's right, that's right. Um, you know, there... There were there were times uh, in history where an old idea really had to had to just go, but with with many of these major peelings, you know, shedding of uh, these these old ideas, we come to something that becomes increasingly robust, but still still probably still incomplete. So this is uh, something the standard model of the particle physics is an example of. It's built on a lot of uh, big corrections uh, in the previous century. Uh, but today, obviously, it's, it's not the full picture. We continue to try and find ways to extend it. It's not, it's not to say that it's, it's wrong, because, you know, the things that it does describe, uh, it describes really well. It's just not telling the full story. So we're trying to piece together uh, missing jigsaw puzzles uh, on, on, on the edge of this picture to try and build a bigger canvas out of it. And I'm guessing when you're working on this, a lot of your day-to-day -day work is coding. Yeah, that's right. In this particular field, when, when we study quarks via simulations, uh, it's a bit of a juggling act where uh, you, you know, you've got to know the, the physics well. Uh, so you've got to know what properties you want to study about the quarks. And then you've got to have the programming knowledge as well to make it possible to get uh, the numerical answer out. Yeah, so quite a varied skill set that you need then. Now, as my last question, if you could go into a different field of physics or other sciences, is there anything else that you'd be interested in researching or finding out more about? Oh, uh, yeah, well, the, the short answer is yes, because, you know, it, it's going to sound quite silly, but, you know, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty interesting kind of research. Even when I say my field of research is in particle physics, today, particle physics is you know, it, it branches off into so many, so many little subgroups, you know, sub-branches of uh, research. Uh, everyone's focusing on uh, a very small detail uh, that somehow probably relates back uh, to the standard model of particle physics. So when I was applying for PhDs, uh, one of the challenges was to, you know, decide which, which of these uh, sub-branches do, do I want to go into. So in the end, I... I I have I've decided to um, study you know these these quarks, but there are, there is definitely this this other 
not completely unrelated, uh, but this other branch where it's motivated by uh, the following question uh, of why is there more matter than antimatter? So the model that we've, we've come up with was that nature should have produced uh, equal amounts of matter and antimatter, or put it another way, there should be no preference between one or another. This is something that clearly is something the standard model says, but it's not being reflected in the real world because these things we call antimatter, uh, let's say like, like the antiproton or the anti-electron. So what they are is that they, they are the exact same particles as the normal matter, but they have the opposite electric charge. So if an electron has an electric charge of minus one, the antiparticle, which we call the positron, that's going to give the, the, the game away, but the positron's electric charge would be a plus one. So you see that they are almost identical, uh, the electrons and the positrons, but their electric charges are the opposite. What happens is that when you have matter and antimatter coming close together, they can, the term we use is they can annihilate each other. When these matter and antimatter come in contact with each other, get reduced into just pure energy or, or, or light. So you can imagine that it would be pretty hard to produce a, a universe with you know, planets and stars uh, if there were equal matter and antimatter. So something has happened in, in the very early times of the universe. And it, it was uh, measured, actually. Like an experiment was done uh, looking out far into space. And they find that in the earliest few seconds after the Big Bang, when you have uh, for, for, every, for every one billion antimatter particle, there was an, a billion and one, you know, just normal matter. Yeah, so, it's, so something happened very, very early on, seconds after the Big Bang, uh, where the matter and antimatter, they annihilate each other, leaving behind a, a trace amount of, of matter that goes on to form this rich uh, universe we see today with stars and planets, people like you and I. So this, this mystery, uh, I, I really like it because it's easy to understand, you know, like compared to, you know, trying to explain about quarks. It's easy to understand because we experience it every day, uh, but it remains, you know, one of these uh, very ground-shaking questions in, in particle physics. For, that's, that's another example that the standard model does not really say much about, and it was something that I was really hoping to, to get into as well. That brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you for coming on to talk about your subject. For anyone who wants to hear more from the SciFi podcast, we'll be posting a new episode each week until the end of this series, and you can also follow us for updates on Twitter and Facebook by searching for SciFi Podcast. 